0: Amen. All right, grab your Bibles, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. I know the last so many Sundays, our our singing time goes long. That's just part of, like, there's, there's more to do on a Sunday morning um, than sing a few songs, if I could say it that way. Again, there's contending that's going on. There's surrender that's happening. We're 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 taking in the grace of God and acting it out together. That that's how the church gets built up, um, and so we're we're going to just give time. That doesn't mean I have to preach an hour sermon. I don't know what's going to happen right now, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll try to make it just pointed and, Lord willing, clear. Uh, so, Galatians chapter three. Uh, verses 15 through 18, I'm going to read it there. Uh, It states this, Paul, again, to the churches of Galatia, that area, kind of modern-day Turkey now. uh, He says to the church, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it, makes it void, or adds to it once it has been ratified. Okay, you get that? There's a covenant that he's talking about, even when it comes to humanity, right? You don't just get to change that thing once it is signed, sealed, notarized, legalized, right? When it's ratified, you don't touch it. It can't be altered. So he goes on to say, now the promises, the promises of salvation that God gave, they were made to Abraham and to his what? All right, Descendants offspring seed right it does not say to his offsprings plural referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is who Christ Christ. oh yes just, just so you know I know it's confusing right now it is dripping with glory This is an incredible statement that Paul is making. So he goes on, verse 17, he makes his conclusion. So this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards. Remember, the promises are given to Abraham 430 years later to Moses. Coming down, you know, 10 commandments etched in the stone and all that kind of stuff. 430 years later came the law. You had the promises given to Abraham. You have the law given to Moses 430 years afterwards. But that does not annul. It does not make void the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise of salvation somehow void. The Old Testament law cannot change God's covenantal promises to his people that he would save his people, right? For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. I know it's confusing. Let me pray. We'll jump into it. Um, Lord, even uh, that other picture that you gave of, um, of opening your word this morning and it being like a slumbering sword in our hand. Lord, right now, we don't want a slumbering sword. Lord, our own hearts want want to come to the table with you even right now and have your word be that double-edged sword. We need the scalpel of your word. We need you to cut us so you can cure us with your word. We need the power of your word at work in our hearts. We don't come here to just get more knowledge in our head, but we come to lay our hearts before you to have your word now bring life to our hearts. So Lord, will you bless these moments together over your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Over the last so many weeks, uh, if you've been with us, we have recognized that what Paul has been explaining is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, a big Jesus, if you remember. It's a gospel that demands nothing but your death. Remember, you don't bring yourself to a bargaining table when it comes to salvation, when it comes to getting right with God or having acceptance with God. You don't come to a bargaining table. You come to that altar where you are to lay all of you on the altar for all of him. That's the good news, that Jesus has become for us life and life in abundance. He died upon that cross Yes, to pay the punishment of our sins, like we saw last week, he became a curse for us. Remember, all that the law does, as the Galatians were tempted to do, is to add law to Christ. We need Jesus, but we also need this religiosity from the Old Testament. And Paul said, no, 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 if you read the law carefully, it's the law that curses you. It's an instrument that reveals that you're guilty, not an instrument that can establish some sort of righteousness for you. You can't do the law. You will fail in one way or another. Just take the law itself of loving God with all that you are. How'd that go this past week? Did you love him with all that you are? No, me either, right? We stand together in that. By the way, we stand together in the fact that if we haven't loved God with all that we are, then the law says we are cursed. We are condemned. We are deserving of nothing but punishment, and that might be a hard thing for us Westerners to get into our head, that God would actually bring about an eternal punishment. And if that's a hard thing for you to get into your mind, it's probably because you've been living your life according to your own sense of standard, not according to His. He's the holy God who has established a holy law. It's His glory, His standard, that we have all fallen short of. And therefore, it's not up for debate. It's not for you to determine what kind of punishment you're deserving of. It's for him to decide that. That if we fail to keep the law, which we do, we are cursed. And we are left, as scripture would say, with an eternal, everlasting, conscious torment separated from God. That's hard news. But here's the good news. Jesus became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That comes from the law itself. And what did Jesus do? He didn't go to that cross as one who was guilty. He went to it as one who was innocent, who was perfect. To pay your penalty. He became a curse for you so that the big Christ might reverse your big curse. So that you who are guilty might be declared righteous before God. Only Christ provides that kind of means of salvation. Only a big Christ. Don't whittle him down. If you remember last week, don't domesticate the lion. I don't know about you, but that's kind of what I was ringing through. That wasn't stuff prepared last week. It was just Lord giving that in the moment, right? And in the moment, then, I've been carrying that through this past week. And I have found myself, so to speak, kenneling Christ. Making the lion of the tribe of Judah into just a house cat. One, one who I can just control on my every whim. Yes, we, we whittle Jesus down to this nice little companion called the, the house cat. Like, yeah, we, we, need, we need a little bit of Jesus. But when he becomes a, new, a nuisance to us, we want to shut him away. We want to kennel him away. So I can then just give myself to my own passions and my pleasures, my things, my dreams, my wants in the moment. Did that happen to you this past week? Everybody's head should be going, yes. (laughs) I'm in on that. I'm with you. I have de-godded God this past week. I've domesticated the lion this past week. I've whittled Jesus down into a God of my own making. So that Dan could just have his moment with a God who gives his all to become a curse for us. We must be careful that as those who have trusted in him, we don't whittle him down. So coming again on Sundays, not that we need to do this, that it can only happen on Sundays, but when we come into the gathering this morning, we're not looking for a Jesus who's just going to make my life a little bit easier this next week the way I want it to be. Remember, Jesus is not adding to the self. He's not an accessory to your life. The whole point of the gospel is that we die to ourselves. You're supposed to carry a cross with you and die daily, (laughs) right? Right? That's what Christ is calling. So when we gather on Sundays, we should be gathering to the altar of his presence, saying, Lord, yep, I shut you away this past week. I domesticated you in certain ways. But here I am, humbling myself before you, thanking you, even as we did, for the many blessings that you gave us, despite the fact that we shut you away. We kenneled Christ. And his mercy is so... if your heart isn't like throbbing with his mercy this morning, then you haven't caught just who he has been to you this past week. It's been mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. So last week we saw that it was only a big Christ that can reverse our big curse, right? But now as we look to verses 15 through 18, um, we, we see that Paul now is explaining how the Old Testament law and God's saving promises function together. Like, Okay, if the law doesn't save us, then what's the purpose of the law? Right, and so that's, that's what he wants to answer. How do these things function together? But before answering that question, and that'll be in so many sermons to answer that question, there's something that we need to recognize about this particular text. Notice notice the words. Just as you gaze upon that page, verses 15 through 18, there should be these words that are like popping off the page. They're fluorescent, so to speak. They're, 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 they're heavy, freighted words. There are words like this, verse 15, covenant. Or verse 16, promise. Or verse 18, inheritance. It's important before we think about how the law and salvation kind of function together that we just see the highlighted words here, because these are all words describing God's activity in salvation. All right, so just catch it for a moment. Covenant. What does covenant have to do? It has to do with God's unconditional love to man throughout redemptive history. Promise. What does that have to do with? Well, It has to do with God's unchanging intentions for man throughout redemptive history. Or what about inheritance? Well, it has to do with God's unimaginable blessing upon man throughout redemptive history and into eternity. These are all words that reference God's activity in salvation. These are words that have to do with what God will do. Remember, the law refers to what man must do. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, but covenant and promise and inheritance. that This is not stuff up to us. It's neither determined by us nor undone by us. These, we could say, are the unalterable things of a sovereign God. Where the law reveals man's guilt, so the covenant's promises and inheritance reveal God's grace. In the law, you will hear God say, you shall, you shall not. The burden, so to speak, is on you. But in the covenants, in the promises, in the inheritance, you can hear God's voice saying, I will, I will, I will. I will redeem you. I will deliver you. I will bless you. I, even as Revelation would say, I will wipe away every tear from your eye. The burden In the covenants and the promises and in the inheritance is thrown upon God's shoulders, not our shoulders, right? He, in other words, didn't hang his saving covenant, his saving promises, or his inheritance upon your perfections. Glory. Glory. Thank God that I can't earn my salvation. Because I am so imperfect. He didn't hang his covenant, his promises, and his inheritance on your perfections, but on the perfections of that spotless Lamb of God upon Christ. So yes, maybe this past week, in other words, you peeled yourself off that cross like I did. You perhaps kenneled Christ to make provision for your own selfish desires. But because his salvation is not dependent upon your performance, but upon Christ's, today, as we gather, if you're you're listening in enough, if you're still enough to simply open the ears of your heart, you will hear the Father's voice beckoning you to come home. you'll hear him saying, child, come on home. The price has been paid. Come on home. My perfect son has won you a place. You're drifting right now, child, but it's time to come home. The idea here is that salvation, therefore, isn't dependent upon my perfections this past week. It's dependent upon Christ's perfections and as such the father continues to call out to his imperfect child, come on home, it's okay, you still got a place at the table. We can never drift so far that we are lost at sea. We always have a path back home through the blood of Christ, through the perfections of Christ. This is what these words mean, covenant, promise, inheritance. This is the stuff that God does for us, despite us. It's the freedom, so to speak, that he is one for us. And it's the ongoing, then, journey of the Christian life to to find ourselves more conformed to him. That I'm not drifting as much this week as I did this past week. I want to be oriented towards the Father's voice. I want to be oriented towards the Father's love. I want to see the perfections of Christ, not as a way that that gives me excuse for drifting, but it's that which calls me into glory and says, I want more. I want to sit at that table. I I don't want to be the orphan spirit. I want to be the one who, yes, lives in the good of my belonging that Christ himself has won. That's the point of this text. Now, to the specifics, though. Uh, Paul, again, he's he's explaining how God's law and his saving grace kind of functions together. And his first line of argument in this section is is this. If you're writing notes. It, uh, It is unthinkable to add anything to Christ. It is unthinkable to add anything to Christ because, number one, salvation came through a promise. It's unthinkable to add anything to Christ because salvation came through a promise. So just look at verse 15. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul is referring to what? In other words, it's more like a, a, a will and last testament of a dying man. It's his covenant that has been legally ratified, sealed, notarized. No one has the right, in other words, to alter the will and testament of a dying Man, it's set in stone. In fact, there are legal ramifications then that guard this will, such that any kind of additions or annulments will only result in one's condemnation rather than their blessing. In other words, you mess with this kind of covenant, you mess with this kind of promise, and when it comes to the Lord, the fury of heaven stands against you. By the way this is why Paul will have said earlier in Galatians that God's covenant promise of salvation should not be messed with his gospel should be should not be messed with if anyone he says chapter 1 verse 8 and 9 he says if anyone we or an angel in heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary should we mess with the promises and covenants of God. Should we annul it or add to it? If we mess around with the gospel, let him be accursed. And so he goes on again, verse nine. And as we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In other words, God is saying when it comes to his covenants, when it comes to his plan of salvation, when it comes to the gospel, you add to it or take away from it All the fury of heaven stands against you. Don't mess with his plan of salvation. Don't mess with his covenants of promise. You see, this is not, however, the will and testament of a weak and dying man. It's the covenant promise of our living God. It's his saving promises. It is Yahweh God The self-sufficient, self-existent God. Again, he depends upon nothing for his existence. He doesn't need your help, in other words. He doesn't need sustenance for his daily activity. He doesn't need rest. He doesn't need sleep. No, he is the one. He's the fountainhead of life. All of creation itself depends upon him. We all need life, breath, and all things, and we got to lean into him for that. We are dependent creatures. He is the independent creature. He is the self-sustaining, self-sufficient God. He doesn't need your help, and this is the one, then, who has ratified this covenant of salvation. He's the one who has established this good news of the gospel. His covenant promises, therefore, are not in need of our editorial help. To take away or add to them. To minimize Jesus because Jesus just ain't enough for me in this life. God does not need your editorial help. And by the way, as the one who is the self-sufficient, self-existent God of all things, thereby is the one who holds all power and authority in his hand. The highest courts of heaven are held in the palm of God's hand. He is the one who has notarized it. He is the one who has legalized it. He is the one who has determined this gospel plan throughout the ages to be fulfilled in Christ. It's not up to us then to shut away the line of the tribe of Judah. It's not up to us to minimize him down so I can just kind of add him into my life as a nice accessory so I can call myself a Christian and feel as though, well, I can live without guilt and I live with some sort of idea of a hope that, well, I don't have to go to hell, but now I get to go to heaven. Oh, folks, these are just the implications of the glory of the gospel. The gospel is this, once again, you must give all of yourself and gain all of him. That's a great exchange. Don't minimize it, don't add to it, don't pervert it, don't mess with it. It has been ratified. This is God's doing. But folks, I just want to, oh man, I want to make sure this is absolutely clear for you. In this culture, we tend to think that we can determine the standard of glory for which we were made. In other words, I can determine if I'm good or bad. You hear people say it all the time, no, I'm, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty good. God, God deserves, like, like I, des- or actually, I deserve from God to like slip in, so to speak, to his graces. We think that we can determine the standard of glory for which we were made, that we can determine the state of our fallen condition to that standard, right? Well, I'm not so bad compared to that person at least, compared to this person. And then we think that we can determine how much of Jesus we actually need. You see how that works? I set my own standard, I determine how bad I am and therefore how much of Jesus I actually need. If that's any, if any of that is a part of your thinking If any of that is a part of kind of how your heart feels about yourself, you're missing it all. You're absolutely missing it all. You don't get to determine those things. You are the creation, not the creator. And folks, I have to give you that bad news. I have to tell you that you are far worse than you think you are. Because if I don't tell you that, you won't throw all of you on the altar for all of him. The cross will be this small little thing. Like that cross. We whittle it down to just this thing. Sorry to bring attention to you. <laughs> right? We whittle it down to this inconsequential thing that can't really have any bearing upon my life because I determined at first how much of Jesus I actually need in the first place. This is wrong. This is exactly what Paul is raging against, right? Right? He so said, don't, don't, do, don't whittle the cross down. Don't whittle Christ down. Don't add anything to him or, 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 or take away anything from him. He's the one who demands the standard of glory for which you were made. He is the one who determines the state of fallenness that you have gone to. And he is the one who says, you don't need part of me. You're going to need all of me. That's the promise. That's being made here. That's the illustration that Paul is trying to drive home. He's saying, and I, I, he's saying something like, How dare we molest the saving promises of God? These are the untouchable things, right? It's therefore unthinkable to add anything to Christ because salvation came through God's ratified promise. It's his dealing. It's his doing. It's on his shoulders. He's accomplishing. He's working. Christ is is his goal, his aim, his all. But then secondly, verses 16 through 18. It's unthinkable to add anything to Jesus for our salvation because salvation came through Christ. Seems simple enough, right? It came through a promise A ratified promise. Don't mess with that promise. But it also came through Christ. Now, you you may have you may be ahead of me at this point. Oh yeah, he died on the cross. I get that. No no no, that's not the argument here. The argument is something altogether different. And but it is so glorious. So Paul says, verse sixteen. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham. Now these promises, just to kind of review your biblical storyline, these promises of salvation were made to Abraham, and it's, it's largely threefold. What did God promise to Abraham? Well, if you go back to the Genesis account and explore just what God promised to Abraham, you'll find this. First, God would promise Abraham uh, that he would make him into a great nation. So through you, Abraham, I'ma birth a whole nation. The second promise is this, That he would give this nation a land, the promised land. But then third, that Abraham's offspring would become a blessing to the world. So you have, Abraham's going to be made into this great nation. That great nation is going to take up this this promised land. And finally, Abraham's offspring is going to be a blessing to the whole world. It's going to bless the whole. Whole world. But notice, particularly, Paul then brings particular attention to that third promise, to that offspring, saying, verse 16, notice it, notice it. The promises were made to Abraham and to his what? Offspring. Referring not to many but referring to one and to your offspring he says who is who christ now the wording of offspring might be difficult for us right it's a collective singular if you want to get detailed about it It, It's it's a word like family. Family is a singular word, but it can refer to all kind of members of that household. In this culture, however, it could also refer to the patriarch, to to the head of the family, so to speak. You don't have a family if you don't have the head of the family, in other words. The family can be summed up in that patriarch, in that head, in that singular individual. The patriarch, in some sense, equals the family. You don't have the family apart from the head. So, Paul is saying that the singular use of offspring referred to Christ. Christ is the promised one who, in other words, would bring blessing to the world. All right? So, you're working with me? Got to engage our minds. But notice, more importantly, he's not just saying, oh, yeah, God promised that Christ would come through Abraham's line. Notice what he says, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to? Following? Verse 16. And to who? His offspring. Who is? Christ. God made the promises to Abraham and to Christ. Think about it. God made the promise to God. God made the promise. God the Father made the promise to God the Son. Isn't that crazy? Right? Here, Here we have, in other words, God making a promise to God. God then positioned Christ for glory way before even Abraham. In other words, these, these promises don't even hang on Abraham. They don't hang on us. They don't hang on Moses. They hang on Christ. He made the promises to Christ. The Father gave these promises to Jesus. The Father positioned Christ for glory. He positioned Christ to conquer, to claim victory, to attain resurrection life. Christ was always positioned to bless The world. It was something that God Himself put on His shoulders, and the Father said to the Son, We're in this together to save humanity. He put it on His own shoulders, not on our shoulders. Throughout redemptive history, then, Christ has always been, if we could see it this way, in the starting blocks. If you think of a race, He's always been the racehorse, like at the gate. Ready to be released in the fullness of time, uh, Paul will say, chapter 4, verse 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. The racing trigger was pulled, right? The gate, so to speak, flew open. Here comes Christ. Here comes the promised one. Here comes the one carrying the bounty of our salvation, the bounty of the blessing for the whole world. Here comes the Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you get it? This is a make God cast it all upon his shoulders. He doesn't lean upon your perfections to save you, to bless you. He casts it all on Christ and says, are we in this? Jesus says, absolutely, we're in this. Let's carry the burden of salvation for the broken. So what does this then mean for you and me? If God gave the promises of blessing, of salvation to Christ... It means that your salvation, in other words, your place with God, your place in the family of God, is once again not dependent upon you. He didn't put you in the racing blocks, right? He didn't send you in the fullness of time. He didn't ask you to achieve anything. He didn't hang his saving covenant promises and his saving um, uh, inheritance, so to speak, upon your perfections, but upon the perfections of that spotless Lamb of God, upon Christ. All God's saving blessings, therefore, are found in Christ, and in Christ alone. Every blessing that God wants to give the world, that he wants to give to me and you, he first gave, Christ is now, if you will, the treasury of heaven. He's the fountainhead of all blessing. All God's saving promises are yes and amen in Christ. Christ has run the race. Christ has won the day. And so it's absolute security for our drifting souls. That even as you look into this coming week and the challenges of it, Knowing that your own heart will probably drift at times. Christ has made every provision for you. So that once again. If you're still enough. If you open up the ears of your heart. You can hear the father. Saying come on home child. Bring it back in. Come back to the altar of surrender. Come back to the place of belonging. Come sit at the at the table, which was won for you through the blood of Christ. What security! You see, if you're going to add anything to Jesus, <laughs> it actually is something that uh, it's something that can't hinder ultimately your security. Paul, Paul is, just to be straight, Paul has gotten up in the grill of the Galatians. He's called them fools, he's called them bewitched, he, he's told them they're probably they may not even be saved. <laughs> right? There are these warnings that he's given to them. But he's trying to get them back onto the solid ground. He knows that the church is gonna drift. He knows that Christians drift. He knows that you're gonna whittle Jesus down. You know, he knows you're gonna kettle him at times. But he's trying to get you back onto that solid ground. Back to that altar of surrender. Back to that big Jesus who's worthy of all. That's his aim. So, to the point. It's unthinkable to add anything to Jesus. Because salvation came through Christ. So then Paul concludes, and this is just brief. Paul concludes verses 17 and 18 saying... He says, this is what I mean. And by the way, like, if this is confusing to you, um, you know, Peter will even say of Paul's writings, he is one confusing guy. All right, so you you stand in good company with Apostle Peter. Um, It it is sometimes hard to understand because we're stepping back into a different culture and and the ways in which the Old Testament law functioned and the ways in which it it worked. So Paul is trying to bring some clarity. He says, "So so this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, right? Promises were given to Abraham and to his offspring, singular to Christ. Now, 430 years later, we got the law that comes through Moses. Well, that law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void. God's plan of salvation, in other words, can't be changed. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Simply stated this. The law is not the pathway to belonging. You say, well, I'm not an Old Testament Jew, so I don't have anything to worry about. I don't have to deal with all these rules of circumcision and whatever else is going on there. Strange stuff as it might be. Think about it. We are prone to creating our own law. Just like they did. We'll go back to the Old Testament law and add that to Jesus. What do we do? We determine just the standard of living that I feel like is right and good. I, I determine how far I've fallen and therefore I determine how much of Jesus I actually need. We recreate the same problem that the Galatians do. We Rather than just saying, okay, God... God requires something of me that I, now I am accursed. (laughs) That's not easy to take, but that's the reality. We're all condemned. We're all on our way to hell. But what has God done? He's given us a big Jesus. It's always been his plan since day one. It's his promise made to himself, so to speak, that he's put upon his own shoulders and he's sent forth Christ in the fullness of time to do what you could not do. To win. To win so to speak, a righteous standing for you. So you don't have to keep on running after significance for yourself. Do you hear it? Stop trying to think that things will make you significant and achievement will make you significant and having all the right orderly things in your life will bring comfort to you. There is one rest that Jesus says we need. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Stop living by the law of the American dream, in other words. Shake yourself out of that crap. And see the glory, the glory that Christ has won for you. See the amazing inheritance that he has won for you. You get now not to engage this next week in the strength of your own flesh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, man. You say, what spirit? I'm not, I'm not, like, I don't even know what that means, practically speaking. That's a problem. That's a problem in the church. If we don't know the working of the Spirit in our lives, then what are we To rely on, but the work of the flesh. Well, I gotta get through it. And we wonder then why we're emotionally burnt out. We're wondering why, oh, I just can't get through. Maybe. Maybe it's because we're not relying all on that God has done for us, but we're still striving to become something ourselves. in that moment, if you slow down enough and listen in, you'll hear the Father say, come on home. Come on back to the table. Come on back to this place of belonging. Christ has won it for you. Come sit and know the rest of being in my family. It's all he's That's all he's given us, in other words, freedom, (laughs) joy, freedom, peace, in the midst of absolute chaos. Once again, when it comes down to it, the law is not the pathway to belonging. Christ, and Christ alone is. It's always been this plan. It's always been God's way. All of me, for all of him. So, folks, even this week, let's not add anything to it. Let's just enjoy our place at the table. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. And Holy Spirit, I pray uh, that even this week we would find ourselves just with ears open the kind words of the Father, saying, come on home, child, sit at the table, come find rest. Holy Spirit, we need to know afresh what it is to find all your blessings and all your promises in Christ, that we would not be running to everything else to satisfy our sense of significance and self-worth, Lord, that we would do nothing but pass all of that on the altar allow you to burn it up so that we might find ourselves kind of resting in all that you say we are in Christ. Lord, help renew our sense of identity
1: morning I want to remind you, you when we get baptized, we're going to have a little get-together for lunch, right after this, baptism Mm -hmm. and lunch. And if you're a kid in 7th grade through 12th grade, 4 p.m., we're going to meet here for some worship time and hanging out together, so keep that in mind. Now, as we dismiss, I just want to read the words of Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the... Great Shepherd of the Sheep, by the blood of that eternal covenant, may He equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Amen. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Amen.